All right. Shalom, shalom. Well, thank you. It is a definite honor, pleasure, a joy to be able to break bread with you this morning. You know, the Word of God, you know, is powerful to life. Amen. Genesis 6. Gabe asked me to teach right after Sukkot. So I've had two months to study this passage. And it's not that I haven't studied it before, but you know when you just spend two months or a length of time studying one thing, you can get all over the board. I can go in a lot of different directions with this because of the things that I learned along the way. And I really love uh, studying the Word, you know, and putting it to practice. Because anything we learn... Anything we are taught, if we can't make it applicable, it, it's just information. It has no value. And it's important for us to be able to put these things to practice in our daily lives, because after all, this is our way of life, is it not? So when, I, when he told me Genesis 6, sons of God, <laughs> man, I almost wanted to climb up, you know, can, can I do maybe seven or eight? Because, you know, the sons of God have a lot of different thoughts, and they're all over the board of who these sons of gods are. And after two months, I'm still all over the board. Because of the scriptures, because of uh, other people's influence or other people's understanding. But there are three main uh, understandings of who these sons of God are, but we'll get into that in a minute. But let me get in verse 1. It's in time when, we, when men began to multiply on earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Adonai said, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they are flesh, for they too are flesh. Therefore, their lifespan will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men they bore children to them these were the ancient heroes the men of Renan now let, let me back up and say this translation is not really the best translation for this passage from my studies in the Hebrew language and from my understanding but notice in verse 1 it's talking that the daughters of men that there are they're increasing. Remember back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply, to replenish the earth, to subdue it. And now we see that's what's going on here, but they only focus on the daughters of men here, if you notice. And we just went through last week the genealogy of Adam through Seth, and prior to that, Lamech through our king, you know, the genealogies. And so they are doing what they were asked to do, multiply. But because of the fall of men, or the fall, you know, back in Garden or 3, this blessing has now become a curse because of the sin nature of mankind. And we see that in this, these first few verses, and this is a precursor to what? The flood. Because of what? Because of the wickedness of men. For they are flesh. And so as we go on, the three thoughts of the sons of God were... The sons of God were Cain, or I'm sorry, back up, my, were from the lineage of Seth, and the daughters of men were from the lineage of Cain. Or they were angels, based on some other scriptures, and I'll reveal some of those scriptures to you, reveal or share those scriptures with you. Fallen angels. Or even the word Elohim could be used in the sense of judges. They were men that were judges on the earth. The interesting thing is, these people probably knew who they were referring to, even though there was no written scripture at this time in history. This came years later when Moses wrote the, the Torah. So, you know, that's a lot of things when we're studying scripture. Keep in mind that people, the audience, they understand the verbiage of what's going on to where we later on have to do the research to study to find out what does this really mean. Now, in uh, Job chapter 1, if you want to turn there, it mentions the sons of God, because the term sons of God are only like three or four times in the scripture, but there's a lot of references to the children of God, to you are gods, those kinds of things throughout scriptures. But in Job uh, chapter 1, 
verse 2. Or no, I take that back. Verse 6. It happened one day that the sons of God came to serve Adonai. So here we see a reference of the sons of God. And they came to serve Adonai. Remember that these were servants. And James tells us that, you know, entertain strangers because they may be angels unaware, ministering spirits unaware, so entertain strangers. Be hospitable to them. Then if you go over to chapter 2, real quickly. Verse 1, another day came when the sons of God, and see, we see that again, came to serve Adonai. Among them came the adversary to serve Adonai. It's interesting, the adversary is there. We know the story of Job. You know, most of us have read Job. We know the, the challenges and the, the, just the constant, you know, attack, if you will. Any of you feel like Job once in a while, like you're just being attacked like Job was? But notice he never really asked why. He just, okay. And then there was a discussion with these guys, you know, with his friends, and pretty soon God spoke up. And then when God has the final word, I mean, what can we say? Let's go back now. Or let's move on. Let me go to Second Peter real quick, because it, it refers to this time. Second Peter. Uh, let me get to Second Peter instead of First Peter. And we'll begin in uh, where do I really want to begin about verse 4 for God did not spare the angels who sinned and this is where they get the term these angels were angels that crossed the line we can see that in Jude verse 6 as well for God did not spare the angels who sinned on the contrary he put them in gloomy dungeons over lower than Sheol to be held for judgment and he did not spare the ancient world. On the contrary, he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and brought the flood upon the world of the godly, ungodly people. Let's go to uh, Jude real quick. Six. I'll go with verse five to begin with. Since you already know this, my purpose is only to remind you that Remind you that Adonai, who once delivered the people from Egypt, later destroyed those who did not trust. And the angels that did not keep within their original authority, but abandoned their proper sphere, as he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the last day. So we see where the scripture here point to these possible sons of God can be these fallen angels, these angels that crossed their limits. You know, and there's a debate, well, can they procreate? Yeshua said they will be neither given in marriage or marriage. But notice he also says the angels in heaven. And also he didn't say anything about procreation in that context. But a lot of people, that's where they argue. So, you know, when we study these, the sons of God, you know, you can, like I say, I've never been able to say, okay, this is literally who they're speaking to, speaking about. Was it these fallen angels? Were they from the line of Seth? Were these judges? The point is, is, what God is really trying to show us is what? Don't mix. Don't mix your seed with corrupt people. Because what is the purpose of the enemy but to always to destroy the seed? And if he can destroy the seed, you know, the seed being Yeshua, then we're in this state forever, like, you know, the sin state forever. So the enemy has always been trying to destroy the seed. Well, he can't destroy Yeshua himself. We know that. But what does he do in our lives to hinder us from walking in the full authority, the full power, to walk in righteousness, to always be, you know, doing the right thing all the time? He's always trying to hinder us in that walk, in that journey, because this is our life, this is our walk. But as Paul said, you know, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I do. Who can save me from this body of sin and death? But, thanks be to God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. So when we look at this, look at what is God up to. What is God doing? What is He trying to show us in these passages that seem to be controversial at times, seem to really bring no definitive answers as to who these people are, what their purpose is, what it is, but what is God really doing? What is He trying to reveal to us today to make it practical, practical so that we can live a life 
worthy of the king. That's how I approach scripture. I try to put myself in their shoes. What are they feeling? What does the smell like? What would it have been like in that day? And, you know, sometimes it's, it's just a fun study for me. But they, you know, these sons of God took these daughters of men to be their wives. And it's kind of implying like they didn't have a choice. You know, if you're, you're, you remember the old pictures of the K-men conking the woman on the head and then dragging her back by the hair of the head? It's kind of that, kind of implying that thing. But they took these women as they chose. There was no, it's like the women had no choice. You're just mine. Let's go on. Then he says in verse 3, My spirit will not live in humans. Most translations says, My spirit will not contend, will, will no longer strive with human beings. Because there is this constant battle between spirit and flesh. Let's go to Galatians 5. And most of these scriptures, you know, most of us probably could quote them by heart, but heard them time and time, read them many times over. But Galatians 5. Uh, let me pick it up in verse 16. What I am saying is this. Run your lives by the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to lead your life. To, to lead your heart. Allow the Word of God to guide and direct you. Then you will not do what your old nature, your old nature wants. There's that constant contrast back and forth, if you will. For the old nature wants what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit want, wants what is contrary to the old nature. These, they oppose each other so that you find yourselves unable to carry out your good intentions. And we, we all can relate to that. I don't think anybody in here has not had those days. I, I started out and I had good intentions today, but by the end of the day, I need to do a mikvah. That kind of thinking. They oppose each other so that you find yourself unable to carry out your good intentions. But if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not in subjection to the old system or to the system that results from perverting the Torah into legalism. And that's what he's talking about. Don't become legalistic in these matters. He goes on to drop down to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fulfillment, or faithfulness, humility, self-control. Nothing in the Torah stands against such things. And so once again, um, one of the things uh, I've noticed that when we get into Torah, we tend to want to clean people up. Right? Torah terrorists, I call them. you got to stop doing that, start doing this. You know, last time I checked, I let God take care of me. <laughs> Show me what I need to do. I do introspect and introspection of what's going on in my heart. What is the lie I'm believing today and allow God to work in the lives of other people? Because I love to watch God work. I love to just sit back and watch and observe what He's doing in people's lives. And sometimes it looks kind of messy. Sometimes it looks like they're struggling. Sometimes it's, you know, our natural human nature to want to step in and help them out but you know if you ever help a, a butterfly come out of the cocoon what happens if you help the chick come out of the egg he dies so sometimes in our good intentions we may hinder what god is doing in people's lives and you know he forgives us he understands our human after all he made us human right but it's you know if we can just learn to let god work in people's lives, you know, he may use you to speak to them, and, or uh, most importantly, you know, lead by example, you know, because he still uses man, he still uses mankind to do these things, but let God lead us, let God reveal those things instead of going up there and trying to clean the fish, or just supposed to catch it, that kind of thing. Let's go back down to Genesis 6 again. He goes on to say that uh, my spirit, once again, will not strive with them, for they too are flesh, for their lifespan is 120 years. Now, you know, once again, we can look at that, well, nobody will live past 120. But we know Abraham lived past that. So when did this begin? We know I'm going through the genealogy to this point, 
Then many lived how many long? Who was the oldest man who lived on the face of the earth? Yeah. And so, what, it, what he's really implying here, what he's really saying, I'm going to give you 120 years to repent. While Noah's building the ark, you've got 120 years to repent. Now think of Jonah. When Jonah was going to Nineveh, what was his message to Nineveh when he first went there? Yeah. How many days were they given? 40 days. So he's give, God has given people a reprieve, but that don't mean he's pardoning them if they don't repent, if they don't turn back. There's a parable in um, Luke 13. Let's go there with a parable of Yeshua. Luke 13. Oh, yeah. Beginning in verse 1. We'll get into this. When you get there, say amen. Amen. If you're not there, say oh me. Just then some people came to tell Yeshua about the men from Galilee. Wait a minute, that's not the right passage. Wait a minute. I don't. I'm going to go back. Maybe it's Matthew 13 real quick. No. Bear with me, please. <coughs> the, the parable is, I thought for some reason I didn't write it down properly. Yeah, I wrote down Luke 13, but I didn't write the actual word. Anyways, the, the owner of the, the vineyard came to the garden, and he came to get fruit off of the tree. And because for three years he did not gather any fruit from this tree, he told the husbandman, cut this tree down, because why allow it to take up soil? Why allow it to take up the space? But the husband said, give me one more year, and I'll fertilize it. You know, I love the King James. It says, I'll dung it, and, and fertilize it. And then if it doesn't produce fruit next year, we'll cut it down. So we see that he does give that opportunity for all mankind to turn, to repent. He doesn't do it immediately. Because if he did it like now, repent, or you'll die, what happens? Yeah. Because go back to when... They were told, in the day that you eat thereof, of the fruit from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you will die. Well, did they die that day? Eventually, Eventually yeah, because they did place that curse on him. But the thing is, to, to Yahweh, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Nobody lived to be a thousand years at that time. None of us have ever lived a thousand years, and thank God for that in this state. <laughs> right? Let's go back now to uh, Genesis. I think it's Matthew 21, 19. Okay. Um, and seeing the fig tree by the road, he uh, came to uh, to it and found nothing on the uh, but leaves. So I think oh, that's the fig tree. Yeah. It's, it's Luke 13, 6. 6. Okay, thank you. You want to read that, please? We're going it. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit down on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered and said, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and pull it on the manure. Uh, then if it should bear fruit next year, it will be good. But if not, we'll cut it down. Thank you. Wow, a smartphone. Mm. You know, think about it. Back in the day here, they didn't have that. They didn't have this stuff. I mean, even 100 years ago. Okay. Stone tablets. There you go. There's pottery. <laughs> All right. Let's go on verse uh, verse 4. Now, here, here, you know, creates that question of the Nephilim, the giants, are living in the land. Uh, the giants, the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, 
and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes, the men of renown. And it should really say these were mighty men. The ancient heroes, it should say mighty men because the Hebrew word there is gibor, for mighty. Now that Hebrew word, you know, we, we look at it as might as, as a good thing, but it can also imply tyrants or bullies as well. It's not just always one or the other because a lot of Hebrew language, and you probably discovered this in your studies, that the Hebrew words could represent a positive or a negative at the same time. They're not always, you know, black or white, if you will. There's a lot of, you know, when, you, when you're looking at the scripture, now why did they choose this way to write it in the English is when I read it, you know. But here, you know, these mighty men were known to be bullies. They were known to be tyrants. They were suppressing weak people. And, you know, that term giant not necessarily means stature, height, Although it could, it could also imply um, how they were strong, if you will, were giants in, what a quote, and have you ever heard the term giants in the faith? These men of name, but they were preying on weak people, such as the daughters of men, to have their way, to do what they want. Now, if these were godly men, would they come from the line of Seth? Would they treat people like that? I mean... How many of you like getting around a, a quote-unquote a godly person and they treat you like you're less than? Nobody likes to be treated like less than. So the giants may not necessarily mean they were big, tall, but also in their uh, capacity, their stature, superstars is a term we use in this country today, are, are uh, great in their abilities, that kind of thing. Giants of the faith, giants in their realm of influence, whatever that may be. So these aren't always that. And the fall means fallen. Or fallen ones. And that's where they get the term and believe it was angels because they were fallen angels. Because of this term, the fall. But once again, it could be somebody falling on somebody who is weaker than you. They're your prey, so you're falling on them. So when we look at scriptures, when we're studying these things... As we dig, it could have a number of, you know, a diamond is multifaceted, so there could be uh, the different, you know, uh, ways, different perspectives to look at these things. Because I'm looking out here, and I see all of you, you're looking this way, and it's a different perspective from how we see things. We all see things different. Nobody here is going to see an accident and see the exact same thing. You know, because of how we were seeing what we were looking, what was going on at the time, it may come out of the corner of the eye. You may have seen the car actually hit something. Others were standing over here, and they had a different viewpoint, a different perspective to see what happened. And so when we bring all these thoughts together, we can now get a bigger picture and get the idea what God is really after. Because many of us, uh, how many of you understand the term tapestries? You know? And tapestries are made out of thread, are they not? Every one of us, when we come together on Shabbat, has a thread to make a tapestry that we're going to have for this particular day, this particular moment in time. And if one of us doesn't bring our thread and don't uh, uh, you know, submit it to, make, to this tapestry, then the tapestry is incomplete. And so we all have a piece in this. We all have a play when we come together to, the, to do a tapestry, and God's the one who is orchestrating this. He is the maestro, the maestro in all of this, helping us to understand what is he really after. Let's go on. Now, it tells us, <laughs> I'll, I'll go on, and then I'll come back to that real quick. Verse 5, Adonai saw that the people on earth were very wicked. He saw, he perceived. Now, the Hebrew understanding of saw, perceived, vision, he, he can see the intent of the heart. He, he can see beyond what we can see in the natural. He sees the intent. He knows the, the timelines. He knows what's coming. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. Because he can see that. He knows that. And that's the, the word ra'ah. It talks about perception. And, how, you know, in the natural, perception generally overrules reality any time really think about it you know you can see things but when you get upon closer inspection you realize 
your perception was wrong. But God, when He perceives things, He knows the reality of it. And let's go. Well, let me, because He says uh, on earth we're very wicked, and all their imagining of their hearts were always of evil only. Let's go to Jeremiah real quick. Nine. We'll go to chapter nine real quick. And Jeremiah, you'll you'll find the word heart in there like fifty-two times roughly. Verse fourteen. And depending on your translation, it could be uh, fourteen or fifteen, depending on if it's a Hebrew Bible or a Western Bible. I'll back it up a couple of verses. That and I answers, pick it up there about twelve thirteen. Because they abandoned my Torah, which I set before them, and neither listened to what I said nor lived accordingly, but have lived by their own heart's stubbornness, the imaginations of their own heart. And by the Baalim, as their ancestors taught them, therefore says Adonai Zebaot, the God of Israel, I will feed this people bitter wormwood and give them poison water to drink. Let's go to chapter 17 real quick. Verses 9 and 10. Uh, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and morally sick. Who can fathom it? I had an eye search their heart. I test the inner motivations in order to give them to everyone what his actions and conduct deserve. That should sober us up a little bit. But thank God for Yeshua. Let's go now to Hebrews 4. Verse 12. See, the Word of God is at work. And is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts right through where soul meets spirit, where joints meet marrow, and it is quick to judge the inner reflections and attitudes of the heart. The next verse, verse 13. Before God, nothing hid or nothing created is hidden, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him, to whom we might render an account. So he's always looking at the heart. Just like he told Samuel there and, uh, when he was, Samuel was about to anoint the next king of Israel, David. And he came to Jesse's house and Jesse had how many sons? Seven. Eight. But where was David? Out doing what? Tending sheep. And Samuel saw the firstborn coming because, you know, that's how they did things. And Samuel said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But what did God say? No, no. I don't look at the outward appearance as man does. I look at the heart. He's always looking at our hearts. Thank God He does. Because how many of us want, don't want Him to help us to live a righteous life? Matthew tells us, Seek His kingdom and His righteousness first. Those things. Let's go back to Jeremiah real quick. Because one of the things that um, the Israelites were told, which we don't hear much about, it's not even in the quote-unquote 613 commandments. Of all the commandments that the, the Jews came up with, the 613, this one commandment is not in there. It's not listed. How many of you know what I'm referring to? What about verse, chapter 4? I don't too far back. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4. I was looking at this this morning, so. 
Let me get there. We'll pick it up in verse 4. Um, I'll go back to verse 3. For here is what Adonai says. Jeremiah 4, verse 3. To the people of Yehuda and Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, break up your ground that has been plowed, and do not sow among thorns. People of Yehuda and inhabitants of Yerushalayim, circumcise yourselves for Adonai. Remove the foreskins of your heart, otherwise my fury will lash out like fire, burning so hot that no one can quench it because of how evil your actions are. We need to ask him to circumcise our hearts. That is the one commandment, and you'll find it in Deuteronomy, that he told them to circumcise their hearts, but we don't see that list in that 613 commandments that people refer to. Let's go to Ezekiel 36. I'll begin in verse 24. For I'll take you from among the nations, gather you from all the countries, and return to your own soil. They're scattered, now he wants to bring them back. If God doesn't do it, who will? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit inside of you, I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart that is tender, that is open, that is malleable, that is led by the Lord. Because that word flesh kind of trips people up here. Because <laughs> we understand the flesh nature, the sin nature. He will take that old stony heart out of your sin nature and give you a heart that is malleable, that is applicable, that is tender towards Him. He goes on to say, I will put my spirit inside of you and cause you. Notice this. He will cause you to live by my laws, respect my rulings, and obey them. When he gives us that new heart, when we ask for a new heart, and he puts that new heart in it, circumcise that heart, that old dead stony heart, it will cause us to want to follow after him. And that's what happens when we get born again, is it not? Because now, as you were saying earlier, our desire is, we were excited about this new way of life, this new walk. I didn't like where I was. I didn't like the old man. He was dead, you know, and I'm glad he's dead and buried. But, you know, sometimes we try to resurrect the old man. But I'm glad that he's given us this, this salvation we have and that he's given us a hunger and thirst for him, hunger and thirst for righteousness, desire him more than anything else. Because anything that we do, whatever we do, it should always draw us closer to him in everything we do and, be, and, and help others to do the same thing to be hungry and thirsty for Him to want to walk in His presence to want to be with Him constantly we have that conscious uh, thought throughout the day He is with me even though I may not feel Him man, I may not be engaging really verbally with Him but I know He is with me everywhere I go because He lives inside of me now and then when I meet a brother or sister, or I meet other people of the faith, wherever I go, there's that connection that even strengthens that. That, that love, that devotion, that desire to want you to be closer to Him. As James says, draw nigh unto Him, and He will draw nigh unto you. He tells us to purify our hearts and to wash our hands. Our sinners. You sinners. And so... God is always wanting us to draw closer to Him, but we've got to do it His way. Not our way. Not only to our own understanding. He's always after us. He's always drawing us. And thank God He does that. But He don't force the issue. He allows us to make that conscious decision for ourselves to choose Him over what will separate us from Him. And He makes it actually easy. <laughs> Deuteronomy tells us that you know it's not too difficult for us to do. It's when we get into our own understanding that makes it difficult or fear. Like, what do you mean I got to go to Africa? You know, that's where lions and tigers live, right? They'll eat you. you know, my understanding, you can get eaten right here with some of these snakes around here, right? I've seen them things. <laughs> you know, it, it's wherever God puts you, we find rest in Him. 
I, I was looking at it, I think it's chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, when he says he placed Adam in the garden. When you look at that Hebrew word for put or place, the root word is noach, which means rest. When we are in his will, doing it his way, we can rest in him that he will watch over and take care of us. And if, if we die, we die, as you know, Yeshua said, hey, if we die, we die. Thomas, hey, if we go to Jerusalem, we die, we die. You know, because I am in him. I am not my own. I'm allowing him to rule and reign in my heart. And, and it takes, you know, a great deal of effort. It takes a great deal of faith, really, to do that. But he's given us that faith. It's just, are you willing to lay your life down for him? It's that simple. And yet, not that easy. Because sometimes simple and easy, you have two different definitions. I know how to change a tire. It's pretty simple. But what if the jack don't work? What if the lug nuts are so tight I can't get them loose? What if you're on a, on a road somewhere where you can't pull over to change it? And I've been there. Simple. I just got to change the tire, but it's not so easy because of the work involved. Amen. I chased a, a lamb there. Let's go back to Genesis 6 now. Verse 6. It tells us Adam and I regretted, he repented, that he had made humankind on the earth, it grieved his heart. You know, we, we don't often see the emotions of God throughout Scripture. We don't pay attention to him. We don't think he has these emotions because... We know that emotions can get us in trouble, right? How many times have we made a decision based on emotions only later say, ah. You know, and yet isn't that how the, the world presents, how the marketing and the sales is always to play on your emotions to get you to buy that product? You know, like the, the new phone that's out, that how could you have lived this long without this new phone, right? And they play on your emotions to get you to buy that. It's like, I don't know what you were thinking, how you could live without this phone so long, but here it is. Well, probably because it wasn't there till now. But, it, you know, if you get caught up in the emotion, you're not thinking logically. And here we see God because we know God is a jealous God because we know that He does have emotion because we are created in His image. He just knows how to control His emotions. Or sometimes we get out of control. And yet part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Controlling what God, you know, those emotions. Because we are emotional people, are we not? And that's a good thing. It's just when they get out of control, or we are led by our emotions and being led by the Word of God. Um, verse 7, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the whole earth, not only the human beings, but animals, creepy things, birds of the air, for I regret that I've ever made them. So everything that was connected to man is being wiped out, except for we know the eight that eventually, and then the pairs that went into the ark that he's about to build, this guy called Noah. But he's willing to start all over. But here's an interesting thought. Remember these men were men of renown. In other words, uh, they made a name for themselves. Remember in chapter 11 of Genesis, it talks about let's build a tower and let's make a name for ourselves so we can reach to the heavens. And what happened? It, it got a new name called the Tower of Babel because it came down and confused the language, confused the speech. Because, you know, if men can do this wickedness because they're unified, just think about if we unify and do good things, what we could accomplish. But because there are so many different divisions, so many different uh, sects, so many different denominations, according to the followers of Yeshua, think about if we were all together, at least one day. We all joined together and, and did God's will together. And it's pretty simple. It's love God and love your neighbor. Love your enemy. You know? How many of you love your enemy? I didn't think so. How many of you love your neighbor? You notice a few hands went up. How many of you love God? You know? <laughs> All right. Well, that's their problem. They don't, they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> yeah. You can't help what they do, but you know we can control what we do. Amen. 
But notice it, it tells us now in verse 8, because going back to the, the men of renown, or in the Hebrew it's men of the name, the Shem, Hashem, is what it says in the Hebrew there, men of renown, men of Ish Hashem. Because in the Hebrew thought, uh, the breath of a man speaks of his character. What he says, what he does, is who he truly is. And so it's not just so much a title or an identifier, which in our culture, when we give somebody a name, it's what? Mainly because we like that name. really has no significance, per se, unless you're naming after an ancestor or relative. But in Hebrew culture, and many other cultures, even in Uganda, they name their children after characteristics, after attributes hoping that that person, this is what they will live up to. We, we uh, had some good friends, they were from Kenya, and they had a, uh, given a boy, I believe it was, and they already had two or three daughters. And so in their culture, the firstborn would be given the name of the grandfather on the paternal side. So this boy was named after his grandfather, David, because they wanted this young man to grow up and be like his grandfather. The daughters were the same way. The firstborn daughter would be given the name of the grandmother or the grandmother on the father's side, and then the next daughter, next son, would be the maternal side. And that's how they named their children. Other nations, other people, I don't remember where they were from, they were Ugandans in a compound with it, and they had a daughter, and the grandfather of the wife came and lived with him for a month, and the grandfather would watch this child and then a month later, they gave a name to this daughter, gave her a name. That was their culture. That's how they did it. And they named her Grace. So, you know, different cultures have different ways of naming themselves. But here, these men were trying to make a name for themselves. We live in a culture that is all about branding. You know, I work in the real estate world. And, you know, one of the things they always teach us is you've got to brand yourself. And that kind of rubs against me a lot of times. Because that, that means i got to make a name for myself. i got to get my name out there. And I understand the principle. And if people don't know you're in business, how are they going to come and do business with you? I understand that. But, you know, it's like, okay, I'm a realtor. This is what I do. You can reach me at this number. You know, it's all good and well. But, you know, they, they talk about branding yourself. Make your name known. You know, get it out there on the, the World Wide Web and get the social media thing happening. And and uh, business cards and emails and you know they have their purpose I'm not against it per se but it's kind of like if we're just about making our name known what is that really revealing my heart because it's not about me at the end of the day what is it that you need how can I help you how can I serve you because that's what we are here to do is serve one another right love your neighbor as yourself serving now the interesting thing here in verse 8 it says but Noah found grace or found favor in the sight of Adonai think about that a minute here are these men of renown we don't know their names we don't really know who they are but here's this one man Noah and we know his name Yeshua said this in uh, uh, 23 let's go there Matthew 23. All right, actually, let me rephrase that yeah. 23.12 well I'll begin in verse 11 it says the greatest among you must be your servant oh, excuse me so the greatest among you must be your servant then he goes on to say for whoever promotes himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be promoted. So humble ourselves. We, we know about humility. We are to humble ourselves. So here's a man, Noah, 
who is found righteous in his generation, who has found favor with God, and God recognizes him. And in the scriptures, his name is mentioned, where these men of renown, supposed to be these great mighty men, giants, if you will, you don't know who they are. And we see that throughout scriptures. How often these people that are supposed to be big and good or whatever, we don't know their names, but then all of a sudden we get this certain person and here we have their names. You know, but then there are others like the Samaritan woman. We don't know her name and yet she's memorialized really in chapter in the scriptures, chapter four of John. The woman at the well. Before that we got Nicodemus, who was a teacher, teacher of Israel, who had a conversation. He came at night to speak with Yeshua. This woman came to the well in the middle of the day when it was not common to come because of the stigma on who she was because she had five husbands was living with the six men. And so she came in the middle of the day, had no fellowship. And yet, who did Yeshua speak to? He was waiting for her at the well. He waited for her to come so he could speak life to her. And what the sixth man couldn't do, the seventh man could. Yeshua was the seventh man in his life, in her life. And she went back to the village. She went back to the man. Come see a man. Told me everything. So we have to understand that, you know, if we go about trying to make a name for ourselves or our business or whatever, it's all getting well. But really what, what we read here, if we're about, you know, being all about me, he's going to humble us. But if we remain humble, hum, uh, humble ourselves, he will lift us up in due time when it's time and whatever that looks like now let's go to uh, I was reading this let's go to uh, Deuteronomy I'm not sure how much time you got I got all day but I'm about done here I'll read the rest of six but uh, I want to go to Deuteronomy or no I'm sorry Exodus Exodus 32 33 Exodus 33 I'm sorry. This is after the golden calf incident. Verse 12. Chapter 33 of Exodus. It says, Moshe said to Adonai, Look, you say to me, make these people move on. But you haven't let me know who, who you will be sending with me. Nevertheless, you have said, remind me, he's, Moses is having a discussion with the Almighty here. You know, I mean, Isaiah says, let us reason together. Think about the boldness of Moses. I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my eyes. I mean, how would you like to hear that from God saying that to you? Now, please, verse 13, if it is really the case that I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways. Show me your ways. Show me your ways. So that I will understand you and continue finding favor in your sight. I don't know anybody that don't like favor. Do you pray for favor? I want favor in this, I want favor in that. I guess not. Based on your reaction, like, well, that's a foreign concept. <laughs> Pray for favor? Let me ask you this. How many of you gone to the grocery store and asked for a spot closer to the door? <laughs> now be honest. I don't know we must be honest. Here we go. I'll be. And the day before you ask God to help you to lose weight. Yeah, which is it? He'll probably answer the first one, make you park way at the back so you got to walk. Because isn't that more, more important? Anyways. But, you know, if you know, we do. We look for favor. We want favor. But it's according to his ways. It's come back. Moses asked for his ways. In uh, one of the Psalms, it tells us that Israel knew the acts of God, but Moses knew the ways of God. And many of us are always looking for the acts, these miracles, these things, and they're, they're good, they're, they're important, I, I don't dismiss them. 
but Moses wanted to know his ways. Now, when we were in Uganda, and I'll wrap it up here because I think your bellies are starting to grumble a little. Um, I, we kept hearing this term, we are now a part of the Hebrew way. Because they were learning the Torah, you know, it had been introduced to them, not just only us, but other people had come and were teaching the, quote-unquote, the roots of the Torah, the, root, the Hebrew roots of the Christian faith, if you will. And they kept saying this. We are part of the Hebrew way, and that just never bore witness with me. It's like, well, if I recall, the Hebrew way got them in diaspora. Did it not? Because what did they do but disobey, right? And so they're scattered through the four winds, and we know it's prophesied in Deuteronomy, you're going to disobey me, I'm going to scatter you, but I'm going to bring you back. But I would tell them, well, let's do this. Instead of wanting to do the Hebrew way, why don't you... Do the Hebrew, do the God of the Hebrews way. It makes a big difference. Because our way, what happens? It may work, it may not, it'd be temporary at best, right? But his way. And so we see here in this scripture, this is a precursor to, you know, the flood when when God begins to instruct Noah. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. So I want you to build this ark, put pitch, and he gives the dimensions of it, which is interesting because many times throughout Scripture he tells us somebody don't really give us the, the definitions or this is how you do it. But there are certain areas in Scripture, like when it came to the tabernacle, he gave divine orders, he gave specific instructions how to build the tabernacle. Each element, each furnishing in that thing and he tells us to celebrate these feast days. He tells us how to, what animals that were to be sacrificed, but he doesn't tell us what to do when we get together. Right? Say these prayers, do this, do that. He said, you know, these are the animals to sacrifice. This is a day. This is the, the meaning of Sukkot. Or, or here we're about ready to uh, wrap up Hanukkah. Right? But you don't really go into great detail how we are to celebrate. These are the elements. These are the animals I want you to offer. Thank God we don't have to do animal offerings. Amen? It'd be a mess. For me, I'd check out because I painted blood anyway. I painted when they pulled my teeth when I was a young kid. You know? <laughs> and so, but he goes into great detail on how to build the ark and what the ark, how to design it. And the similar ingredients to build the ark Noah's ark is what he told you know the basket that was made for uh, Moses when he was placed in the mount not Rome you know it's a basket pitch inside pitch outside to keep it watertight because I want to protect you I need to protect you and so those eight people and all the animals that were in the ark he had them he protected them in the midst of the storm. And something they had never really seen before. They've never heard about rain. They've never seen about rain. All they know is he says it's going to rain. He's going to flood the earth. And Noah did it. We don't see where he, he, he hesitates or in the scriptures. If you go to the last verse of chapter 6, what does it say? Somebody want to read that for me, please? After all that, let me ask you this. And then, I'm sorry, I get I'm confused with you, Gandhi, sometimes. How many times they say we're going to close with this, and about three closes later? <laughs> right? How many of us would have questioned this? Or God gives us instructions, this is what I want you to do, and we, well, I don't know. <laughs> but God, Right? But God is merciful. He is good. He loves us. He knows what our answer is going to be before we even give the answer. But He's still there to, to give us the opportunity to repent when we disobey Him. He gives us an opportunity always to repent. We need to be quick to forgive, quick to repent, slow to speak, 
quick to listen. That should be what's important of us, because all of us are not gonna, we may fall short once in a while, we may have a wrong, a bad day. We may have a, a you know, ever kind of get angry at the drivers on the road? You know, <laughs> right? Or like we woke up this, or we got home, we went to visit uh, Jason and uh, Jesse in the Enterprise last night, and we get home last night and our water is froze. You know, come and find out the neighbor next door to us, their water is froze, so it's probably a park deal. I just sorry, so you know, like the things we take for granted. But thankfully, we had a warm place to sleep. And, you know, it's not like we haven't lived under those circumstances before being missionaries. So it wasn't like, oh, we've never been down this road before. But God is merciful. He knows what he's doing. You know, it, it caught a lot of people off guard, even though there's warnings, you know, about this cold spell. But here you are. Praise God. We're all here resting in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Father, we thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for you just continually are working in our lives, drawing us ever closer to you. Help us to draw others close to you as well. To be that conduit, if you will, that, that vessel of honor to, to allow people to know you more. As Paul said, I want to know you more. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know the sufferings. I want to become like you in your death, in his death. And I pray that for everybody here, that they want to know you more. I want to draw close to you and be a vessel of honor, be a vessel of conduit where people will feel your presence and feel the love that you have for whomever they come in contact with this week. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So if you want to gather with your loved ones, oh Mike, would you mind doing the Hamotzi blessing with the bread, the fruit of the vine there, before we sing the Orion benediction? Amen. Sing blessing over the the fruit of the vine. Baruch atah Eloheinu melakalam Borei Puri Amen Blessed are you the universe who creates the fruit of the Amen. Let's do the bread. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, brings forth bread from the earth. Amen. Welcome to gather with your loved ones and families. We sing the Iran Invention and close out our worship service. Don't forget, we continue to worship through the breaking of bread, right? And uh, may your conversations, your time together be edifying and bring God glory. Shalom, 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 shalom
make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. Give us all a good week. Praise you, Father. We sanctify your holy name. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.